0: Guilt is good, if handled the right way. All right, well, let's get started. Good morning. Good morning. Welcome to Sunday School and our seventh lesson in the Biblical Counseling 101 class. Why do I do what I do and how can I change? Let me pray as we begin. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this time to dwell on important matters of sanctification. We thank you that you are doing the work, and yet you use us, not only our own inner person and our personal sanctification, but also you use us to help one another be sanctified. So equip us, convict us, encourage us this morning. Help me to be able to explain well. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so... Before we get into today's lesson, let's talk about your homework. So last time I gave you a booklet to read through. And the reason I gave you a physical copy is because I I want this to be a resource for you in the future. But you were to read through, besides reading the Bible and praying every day, and I hope you have taken that discipline seriously. If you keep saying, oh, I'll get to it, I'll get to it. You need to repent of that because this is a very necessary discipline for your life. And actually, even Jay Adams talks about that a little bit. So what are some observations or questions you had from reading this booklet from Jay Adams? Let me hear. Yeah, Rose. I like the way Adams explained how we can't become an instant first time. It takes discipline structure and patience to let the voice grow a lot of our Sometimes we want to rush it. Just like a rose needs time to become a beautiful flower of creation the work. Yes, that's a great observation, Rose just bringing out what J. Adams observed, that we want to become instant, instant, uh, instant perfection. We want instant uh, victory over all our temptations and sins. And that's not just true of sanctification, but I think we view that, view a lot of things in life that way. We want everything to happen immediately, but that's not the way God designed the world. You go to Proverbs, and it's the fool who's looking for things to be instant. And that's why he cuts corners, that's why he goes into sin, and he pays the penalty for it. But the wise person does that diligent, disciplined, overtime work, and then reaps the benefit. And that's certainly true for sanctification. What else? Yeah, April. I mean, I'm sorry, Glenda. (laughs) Yes, so. Okay, so two observations there. One, I'm glad that you brought that out, uh, Glenda. The, oh, and I just lost my train of thought. I'm sorry, can you repeat the first part of it again? (laughs) Yes, have it, have it, have it. Yes, bringing out that we... Habits really matter for us, but they are a gift that can be used for good or for bad. You train yourself in ways of thinking and ways of acting that can be helpful and e- or, helpful or not helpful, good or evil. And that's why it is important, the second part of what you're observing, Glenda, that we get into the Word, even to the deeper things of the Word, so that we can train ourselves, train our minds, and even train our lives toward godliness. But another aspect of that is practice, right? Uh, I think about this even for evangelism. We want to be instant experts in evangelism. But guess what? That's not going to happen. You're going to, especially when you're just beginning to pursue faithful evangelism, you're not going to do it perfectly. But you'll get better as you practice. And so it is with so many things in the Christian life. You have to practice it. You have to endure if you want to grow. And the word has a central part in that. But if you give up, as soon as it gets hard, well, you're being faithless before the Lord and you're really harming yourself. Let me hear something else. I think, Jay, you had raised your hand. Yes, so Jay bring out more about needing time to establish a habit. And this is kind of an interesting intersection of psychology and the Bible, right? Not everything in psychology is bad. And one of the things that psychologists have observed is that it takes a certain amount of time to establish a habit. Uh, Jay mentioned two different timelines. I'm not exactly sure what the exact number is, but a certain number of days or a certain number of weeks, and then it becomes a habit, and then more days it becomes something you don't even think about, something really established in your life. Okay. That's exactly what the Bible says, right? We train ourselves in righteousness. We train ourselves in unrighteousness. And what's really important, and Jay, you mentioning that, kind of brought this back to my mind. There's a fundamental difference in the paths we are faced with moment by moment in our lives. The path of righteousness and the path of sin. The path of righteousness is hard in the beginning, but it gets easier over time. And you get the, the blessing of it. The path of sin is easy in the beginning, but it gets harder over time. You reap the negative results of that. So it really is an act of faith to pursue a righteous habit. It's going to be especially hard for you in the beginning, if, uh, particularly so if you have trained yourself in unrighteousness. I tell this to men who are struggling with immorality or pornography. It's going to be extra hard for you in the beginning to turn away from that. But if you persevere in that, it will get easier and you'll be able to walk as God has actually called you to walk in faithfulness and self-control. And that's true for really any sin or righteousness habit. These are some good observations. One other thing I wanted to bring out because somebody had asked this question to me at the end of the last class is I talked about the hard work, the, even the battling of sanctification, the discipline of it. But practically, what does that look like? When I say, we have to do the hard work of sanctification, relying on the Holy Spirit, but we have to do it. Well, what is that? Practically, what is that? Now, Jay Adams brings out part of it. It includes the means of grace. You actually need to discipline yourself to read the Word and pray and fellowship with believers and go to church and pay attention to the sermon. That is part of it. But another part of it is, That attitude of, what's the word I'm looking for? Oh, the attitude of self-denial. You must embrace that attitude so that when you encounter a temptation or a trial, you endure. You don't just look for the easy way out. You say, ah, you know, it's just too hard. I'm just going to give in and repent later. That is not going to establish a disciplined habit in your life. Instead, you must do the Hard internal work of enduring. First, by disciplining your thoughts. Saying, I'm not going to keep thinking about this because I know this leads me down towards anxiety or depression or anger or whatever it is. I'm going to think about what is good. And this is what the Bible calls us to do, right? Set your minds on things above, not the things of the earth. And also think about what is true and lovely and praiseworthy, as Philippians 4 says. I'm going to discipline my mind not to think about evil things, but to think about good things. I'm going to dwell on what is helpful. I'm not going to yield to that temptation. I'm going to endure as long as it takes. Now, again, going back to Rose's the observation, we, we want the quick victory, the quick fix. But that that doesn't happen. That's not the way life is. God says, endure, stand firm in the evil day. Having done everything, you will be able to stand if you put on the armor of God, if you take hold of his promises and take hold of the gospel. You discipline yourself mentally, you are willing to endure, and you do whatever you can in your life to assist you in pursuing God. Jesus talks about if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it from you. Or if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it from you. If you're going to do the hard work of sanctification, you you don't say to yourself, what's the bare minimum? If that's what you're saying, then you are not going to succeed because it's not important to you if you see it as important before God, God is worth it, fellowship with Him is worth it, the sanctification is absolutely necessary for my life, then instead of saying, what's the bare minimum, you're going to say, what? how can I go all out to overcome this temptation, to overcome this sin habit and walk in holiness before the Lord? That's a totally different mindset. So you say, I'm going to get rid of that that thing in my life or I'm going to adjust the way I approach this relationship or I'm going to start memorizing this scripture. These are all very practical things you do because you've embraced that attitude of this is important and I need to go all out. When you do those things, that's the hard work of sanctification and over time, it reaps, it, it reaps the fruit of peace, the blessing of walking with the Lord. There's a reward in that. Jesus says, the Bible says, you've got to believe that God will reward you for following him. This is a faith-fueled effort. This is a joy set before you kind of effort, but it does take discipline. So I hope you appreciated that exhortation from Jay Adams. And I wonder if any of you memorized the scriptures that I gave as extra credit. Can anybody give me any of those scriptures? Yeah, April. April. Okay, I'm not sure which um, translation that is, but I think, oh, King James. Sure, yeah, so Proverbs 4.23, very good. And uh, Luke 6.45, I'll do that one. So the good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth what is good, but the evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth what is evil. For out of the heart, what? The mouth speaks. And then James 4.1, anyone know that one? What is the source of, oh, go ahead. I think you got the first part of it. Yeah, so, and I think you might be using the King, King James. Yeah, so I have the New American Standard. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is it not the pleasures that wage war among your members? It's the things you value on the inside. It's the desires and treasures of your heart. That's where your quarrels and conflicts come from. That's where my quarrels and conflicts come from. Of course, those are all related to what we talked about last time. Now let's talk about the new homework. Continue reading the Bible and praying. If you're not doing that, you need to do that. But I actually have a different kind of assignment when it comes to our our main assignment. We're not going to do some reading of an article or a booklet, but I want you to complete this Bible study. I just put it uh, together on this worksheet, one page. They say, oh, you know, one page, that should be easy. Well, you've got a number of passages to read, so it's probably the equivalent amount of reading. But rather than making simple observations and questions, I want you to complete the questions that I have here, and they all have to do with uh, what's really going on in these biblical persons' hearts and whether they've truly repented. So I want you to complete this. Make sure you give enough time for that. And then the second assignment is more memory verses, and they are connected to what we're going to be talking about today. You say, uh, you know, what's the what's the good of doing memory verses? These are the things that are going to assist you in your sanctification. Treasure this word in your heart, and it will it will be an aid to you in your spiritual battle. All right, but let's actually get into today's lesson, which is oh wait, I did have one other thing I want to talk about. Someone Ask the question related to last lesson which is what is the difference between good desires permissible desires and idolatrous desires If you desire to do well at work is that coveting If you desire to get married is that idolatry What's the difference Well in some ways that's a that's a great question no not in some ways in many ways that's a great question but in some ways it's a simple question It all has to do with your contentment A desire is fine but are you okay without that desire being fulfilled? You want to get married? Fine. But if God says no, or if God says not yet, are you okay with that? If you are, then that is non-idolatrous desire. But if you're not, you have proceeded into idolatry. You have to have that attitude of, Lord, I desire this, but your will be done. If you can say that in your heart, then you're still worshiping the Lord. You're content. But when you say, God, I really desire this, and if you don't do it, I'm not going to be happy. I'm not going to be content. That's something you need to repent of. You're overvaluing something, some treasure in the world, and you've you've devalued the Lord. He's enough. And he says, I have given everything in your life exactly as would be good for you, so you can trust me. It is good for us to bring our desires to the Lord. And some of these can be pretty deep. God, my marriage is just so painful for me right now. Please, can you change my spouse? And God might say, not yet. You need to grow. You need to grow in your patience and endurance and your faith in me. And so your heart needs to be able to say, God, please do this, but your will be done. I'm committed to following you no matter what you choose. And Jesus says, if that's your attitude, then you will find refreshment for your soul and me. So are you okay without it, and do you want it for the right reasons? That's, that explains a lot of what is the difference between a, a fine desire and an idolatrous desire. Okay. Hopefully that didn't take too much of the lesson time today, but that was good, um, good introductory material. Let's talk about today's topic. Originally I said guilt, repentance, and forgiveness, but that was too much to talk about in one day, so we're just going to do guilt and repentance. We'll do forgiveness next time. These are very related concepts. They have a lot to do with what we've talked about before, and you can see there's kind of a chronological sequence to them. Guilt, repentance, and then forgiveness next time. As a little introduction, I think this is a very fitting meme for today's world and even today's class. You keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. And there are many terms today that are used in such a way that they've been stretched or distorted or altogether redefined from their original meaning or even their biblical meaning. Terms like justice or tolerance or gender and marriage. And I'm sure many others. This problem is also true for the terms that we'll be talking about today and next time. Terms that are central to the process of, the biblical process of change. And we start by talking about Guilt. You ever felt guilty? What does that feel like? Can anyone tell me? Yeah, Glenda. Okay, you're filled with regret. What else? Okay, there's a sense of shame. Is it a good feeling? It's a terrible feeling. It's an agonized feeling. And you see this depicted in in lots of famous works of literature and and film. Someone who is just overcome with guilt, they want to get out of themselves. They want to escape. They want to be clean. But you know what? They can't. Or at least a lot of times it seems like they can't. Guilt is a terrible feeling. The feeling of guilt is rather agonizing. And no one likes to feel guilty in our society. Our materialistic, secularized, psychologized society is committed to relieving us from the feelings of guilt almost without any cost. Whatever whatever we have to do so that you don't feel guilty anymore, we're going to do that. And Someone mentioned shame. What's the difference between guilt and shame? In many ways they overlap, but guilt is more inward-oriented. Shame is more outward-oriented. Inward standard I didn't fulfill, outward standard I didn't fulfill. Yet worldly wisdom, and you can see this is a point in your handout, Worldly wisdom cannot properly deal with guilt or its associated negative feelings. Let me ask you, how do the people of the world try to deal with the feeling of guilt? What are some ways? Yeah, April. Excuses, right. Some version of rationalization, excuses, blame-shifting... I'm a victim. I'm not really the one at fault or somebody who's trying to assist you. You're a victim. You're not really at fault. What else? Okay. Some sort of pleasurable distraction. And it could be alcohol. It could be drugs. It could just be fun things. What else? Yeah, Dwayne. Yeah. So Dwayne bringing out the idea that there's almost a a doubling down on the thing that made us guilty. Don't feel bad about it. Celebrate it. Pursue it more. And that is sometimes the advice. If you feel guilty about a certain thing or a certain sin, just do it more until you don't feel guilty about it. And let's even celebrate it. And we see that with LGBTQ issues. Sometimes uh, the solution is chemical. Hey, you've got got this anxiety or this this sorrow associated with guilt. Let's give you something that will calm you down. We'll give you some pills. Or self-esteem. Yeah, you made a mistake here, but you're still a good person. Let me tell you about how great you are. You need to think about how good you are. And other things. Now, these are not always effective. Sometimes they can temporarily lessen or distract from the feeling of guilt but they don't deal with it ultimately. and Sometimes they just intensify the guilt, temporarily cover it, but then you come back to it and you're like, I feel worse than ever. Guilt is a very, a very difficult feeling, but the truth is you cannot deal with the feeling of guilt until you've dealt with the fact of guilt. And biblically speaking, guilt is a fact rather than a feeling. Guilt is a fact rather than a feeling. To do a word study of the word guilt in the Bible, you'll see that the word is always used to refer to the legal status of someone who has done something wrong. This is not about a feeling. It is about a state, a legal state before God or before a governmental law. Because guilt really is the fact of violating a legal standard and of deserving punishment. This is guilt biblically defined. Now, in English, we use the word guilt to refer both to the fact of deserving punishment for something wrong and the negative feeling that is associated with it, when you think you deserve punishment. Now, the Bible talks about the feeling of guilt, too, but in a different way. Biblically speaking, this latter feeling is called a bothered conscience or a bad conscience. What is the conscience? Conscience. The conscience is just part of our inner man. You could even say it is our inner man, as we're made in the image of God. God imprinted in our inner man a certain knowledge about his character and law. And then he gave us a faculty or ability to detect how we ourselves line up with God and his law, his standard. This ability, this faculty, we've come to call conscience. Now, interestingly, there's no Hebrew word for conscience at least in the Bible, though the Old Testament does describe the inner man as a whole working to report guilt by negative feelings. There's a good example of this in 1 Samuel 24, 5. This is when David cuts off the edge of Saul's robe, and it says, it came about afterward that David's conscience bothered him because he had cut off the edge of Saul's robe. Say, hey, that's conscience in Hebrew. Well, that's just the translation trying to help us. Literally, the Hebrew here is David's heart caused him to be struck. That's the same thing that we talk about when it comes to conscience. It's the inner man's analyzing ability saying you deviated from the standard. Psalm 32 and Psalm 51 further describe the painful inner man experience of someone who has not yet dealt rightly with his sin before God. Now, the New Testament, the Greek of the New Testament does does have a word for conscience. It's the word sunadesis, sunadesis, rather. And it literally means a knowing with. It refers to the human ability to know and evaluate oneself, especially morally. And this evaluation doesn't always have to be negative. Many New Testament verses actually talk about somebody having a clear conscience or a good conscience, a conscience that says, you're doing right. But whatever the judgment of our individual conscience is, we all have one, and its effect is evident across all times and places in the world, just as Romans 2 says. Now the conscience is generally helpful, but it is not perfect. Our inner evaluation ability can be misinformed, it can be distorted, it can even be deadened or seared. This is one of the things that is so true about false teachers, they have seared their consciences. A person, therefore, may not feel guilty when he is, in fact, guilty. Or, contrarily, a person may feel guilty about something that is actually good and permitted by God. And this is an issue that comes up in counseling a lot. How, then, should we help someone struggling with either guilt or the lack of guilt in his conscience? Well, again, we cannot properly deal with the feeling of guilt until we've dealt with the fact of guilt, which means that, first of all, we must not underemphasize or overemphasize to a person his guilt. We must not underemphasize or overemphasize a person's guilt. Rather, we must tell them what the Bible says. We must apply the truth of the gospel to a person and to his state before God. On the one hand, we cannot minimize or excuse any person's sins. All people are factually guilty before God because of sin, Romans 3.23. And each specific sin that we do either cries out for justice or pardon from God. Furthermore, God is a holy God, and he will judge in his infinite justice and anger all sin. Even what we consider small sins, respectable sins they bring us under the curse and wrath of God. Or as a believer, the the discipline of God and that temporarily breach of fellowship. So in both counseling and evangelism, we need people to see the fact of their guilt and God's coming chastening on them. We need to load their consciences with that truth so that they're bothered. This is the bad news of the gospel, but there's good news too, right? We must not underemphasize guilt, but on the other hand, we must not overemphasize it because God has made a way for people to be set free from guilt and from the punishment of guilt. And what's that way? It is faith and repentance in Jesus Christ. That's actually the last blank there, but that is the only proper way to deal with guilt. It is faith and repentance in Jesus Christ. The way to be free is not penance. It is not by doing a whole bunch of good works to make up for the bad works or by suffering a certain amount of pain. This is something you see in religions all over the world. This is how they try to deal with guilt, penance. That's never enough, and a lot of people confess. I never feel like I'm clean. (laughs) That's why, or it's because God... Did not decree that that would be the way you'd be set free from the fact or the feeling of guilt. Rather, it is by justification. God has decreed that justification, being pronounced not guilty and righteous before God, it only comes through Christ. Only comes through Christ, not your own works. So we must direct guilt guilty counselees to faith and repentance, clarifying for them that Christ really does deal with sin once and for all. The repentant sinner is forgiven, washed, welcomed into the presence of God. He's not a prodigal who maybe can work his way back into his father's good graces after a thousand years. He's immediately brought in upon repentance into the banquet, and he's fully restored. That's true for each one of us. First John 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's a matter of God's faithfulness and justice. If he didn't do this, if he didn't welcome us back, then he would be unfaithful because Christ has accomplished everything for our restoration. Therefore, Romans 8.1 says, There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is the glorious truth that we want to communicate, we we want to inculcate to those who are struggling under the weight of guilt before God. Quick aside, a lot of people struggle with assurance, assurance of salvation. It's important that as we communicate these truths, that we do not try to give those people assurance ourselves. We don't tell them, you're saved, I know you're saved, don't question that. You don't know that. All you can tell them is what the Bible says, which is if you really believe in Christ and if you've repented of your sin, then you're saved. The Spirit will bring about that assurance as they proceed in faith and repentance. That's not your job. You just tell them the truth. You direct them towards faith and repentance. If you try and give assurance you might give assurance to somebody who doesn't really deserve it. Because ultimately, you can't see what's going on in another person's heart. Don't tell them necessarily that you know that they're not saved. All you can do is look at the fruit. Say, this is what your life shows, suggests. But assurance ultimately has to come from God's spirit. We direct them to faith and repentance and let the Lord do the rest. Now, what about when, even after faith and repentance, a person's conscience still accuses them? You heard the first part. We must not underemphasize or overemphasize guilt, but secondly, we must also help them and help ourselves inform and regard our consciences rightly. We need to help inform and regard our consciences rightly. I have to understand that conscience is a great gift from God. The conscience warns us when we are in a dangerous state of guilt so that we seek the proper remedy from Christ. It's like a pain, or it is like the pain mechanisms of our body. Nobody likes to experience pain. You accidentally hammer your thumb or stub your toe. You get this report of pain in your body. It's very unpleasant. But the fact that we sometimes experience pain is good, often good because your body is telling you that something is wrong. Hey, I'm injured, or there's some sickness in me. I'm going to report this to you by pain. Do something about it. That's a gift from God. And it's very much like what our consciences do. It's like an internal pain mechanism, a pain mechanism of the inner man telling you that something is wrong spiritually, and it needs to be addressed. Now, this analogy extends further because sometimes our bodies can get confused and report pain when there's nothing physically wrong. But the fact that our bodies do this is itself an indication that something is wrong. The pain mechanism, the pain reporting mechanism, needs addressing. Something's wrong in that level. So it is with our consciences. A bothered conscience always means that something is wrong you've entered some kind of dangerous guilt situation. Either because you've in fact done something or said something or thought something against God and his law, you've actually done something wrong, or because you think you have, which is itself wrong. Romans 14.23, the second half of Romans 14.23, in a discussion of, various convictions in the church that are not necessarily right or wrong, keeping the Sabbath, eating food, sacrificed to idols, or eating what's considered unclean foods. It says, whatever is not from faith is sin. It's not wrong if you eat these ceremonially unclean foods, but if you feel it's wrong, then it's sin for you. Whatever is not from faith is sin. Even if something is permitted by God, we must not go against our consciences and act against what we believe to be right. To violate our consciences, not only goes against scripture, commands us not to, but it's dangerous. It works to sear and deaden our consciences, which makes further sin all the easier to pursue. That's, again, a characteristic of false teachers and apostate Christians. They've deadened their consciences. So, when we encounter somebody whose conscience is still bothering them after faith and repentance. Could be a few reasons why that, why that is. It could be because the repentance was false. It wasn't complete, and the heart knows it, and that's why it still bothers the person. It could be they, they truly want to repent, but they, they don't embrace the positive side of it. They don't actually believe in God's full forgiveness for their sins oh, yes, yes, I'm turning from this sin, but I still don't think God could accept me. You need to believe what the Bible actually says. It also could be because that person has an overactive conscience that is condemning them for something that is not wrong. And how do we help the person with an overactive or misinformed conscience? We, help, we want to help properly inform and train the conscience with the truth of God's word. Conscience always operates according to the facts known and believed in the inner man. This is why a conscience may sometimes vindicate actions which are actually evil or condemn actions that are actually good. This is also why Paul proclaimed that he served God with a clean conscience, but he wasn't acquitted on that basis. Because he says, I, my conscience could still be wrong. Ultimately, I have to submit before God and what his word says whatever my conscience tells me. This is true for all of us. We must ultimately subject ourselves and our consciences to God's revealed word. And by doing so, over time, we will train our consciences into what God's standard actually is. This goes back to, I think, a little bit of what Glenda was sharing earlier. Hebrews 5.14 says, in reference to the food of God's word, but solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. You may say, oh, but I've sinned so many times in this way, I don't even feel bad about it anymore. Well, submit yourself to God's word. Practice righteousness. Take in this truth so that you can train your conscience in what is good once again. You can rebuild it. It'll take time. But also, for the things that you feel that are bad, that are not bad, well, continue submitting yourself to God's word. Listen to what it says. Believe it and your conscience will be freed up. The key, though, is we must wait for our consciences to be clear before proceeding. If we say, oh, you know, the Bible says this, but I still feel it's wrong, I'm just going to go with what the Bible says. We could be doing dangerous damage to ourselves. Obviously, if the Bible commands you to do something and your conscience says no, well, it's a little bit of a different issue. We need to speedily train that conscience because you you can't neglect the command of God. But for something that is permitted, not necessarily commanded, don't do it until your conscience says, that's good, that's fine. Bottom line is, faith in Christ and repentance from sin are the only true solution to guilt, both the fact and the feeling. And if someone is struggling with guilt, you're going to have to help them with both faith and repentance. And repentance is usually the part that needs extra special attention because, like guilt, many today misunderstand repentance. And that's our second topic. Let's talk about repentance now. Worldly wisdom certainly provides many false or incomplete substitutes for real repentance. I already mentioned penance. That's one. Excuses and rationalizations. That's another. Apologies. Mere apologies and confessions, that's a substitute too. I'm sorry that this happened. I made a mistake. Sometimes people think that's repentance. Or expressions of sorrow. Look, he's crying. He's crying about what he did. He must be repentant. Or an expression of a new commitment. You're right. Shouldn't have spoken to you that way. I'm going, to do, I'm going to do differently from now on. Is that repentance? These things all by themselves, they are actually not repentance. And they do not bring release from guilt. Real repentance is lasting change from the inside to the outside. A good biblical definition of repentance is it is a change of heart leading to a change in action change of heart leading to a change in action. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew word for repent is shuv, and it means to turn or to return. In the New Testament, there are two Greek words for repent, epistrepho, which also means to turn, and metanaeo, which means to change one's mind. Combining those together, you can see that repentance is an inner man change that leads to a turning in the outer man also. It's a turning in the inner man that leads to a turning in the outer man, a turning of your whole life, even. Now, when it comes to both salvation and sanctification, a person must fundamentally change his mind. It's to change his mind about God. It's to change his mind about the false idols that he treasures. It's to change his mind about sin. It's to change his mind about himself. That's what repentance is. A person must embrace a totally new direction, deep within a 180-degree turn from sin and idolatry to God and righteousness. And without this kind of total heart and life change, there is no salvation. We already talked before about that wrong idea of you can take Jesus as Savior, but later take Him as Lord. Or you don't have to take Him as Lord. That's not biblical. Repentance is a change of heart that leads to a change of life, and if it's not there, you're not saved. And if you're a believer, if you are a saved Christian, and you fall into sin, you will not have restoration of blessed fellowship with God or others until you actually change your heart. Until your heart embraces a totally new direction. Jesus summed up his salvation call in Mark 1.15 with this simple message. Mark 115 The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. This is fundamental to salvation and sanctification. It is, as I said before, A necessary lifestyle of ongoing repentance for the believer. Realizing we're in sin and changing to walk anew. That's what a true believer does. And this is what we help one another do. This is not merely individual. This is corporate. Luke 17.3 says, Luke 17.3, be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. Sin and repentance are expected in the body of Christ. We should be helping one another to repent. We are to encourage, we are to confront, we are to entreat one another as necessary to turn from sin and to turn back to God. And this will almost always be necessary in biblical counseling. It's usually something your counselee needs to repent of which means you're going to have to explain to him, probably him or her, what repentance is and why it's necessary. Now I've given you kind of a, an overall view of repentance and it even connects with some of the things we said last time, but let's drill down a little further. Biblical repentance can be further described and delineated from false repentance by attention to four aspects. Four aspects that are always present in true and soul-liberating repentance. And these points and the supporting passages, they're the same ones that I brought out in a sermon I preached in January on repentance. So if they sound familiar to you, that's why. I think these are still helpful. What are four aspects of repentance that are always present in true repentance? Number one, a change in your understanding that leads to confession. A change in understanding leading to confession. If you are genuinely repentant, then it, you will change how you think based on what God's word says. It will change how you think about God, yourself, and your sin. You will homologeo about that sin in your heart. Homologeo is the Greek word for confess, and it literally means to say the same thing. In repentance, you will say the same thing in your mind, in your heart, as God does about your sin good example of this is the beginning of David's Psalm 51. Psalm 51, verses 1 to 4, you can open to that passage. I think it will be useful for you to see for yourself. The title of the psalm says, For the choir director, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet came to him after he'd gone into Bathsheba. Listen to what David says about his sin. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion, and blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge." We won't analyze this passage in depth, but you can see pretty quickly that David understands the magnitude of his sin before God. David knows he has transgressed God's good commands like a criminal. He has perverted God's way, polluted what is good by his iniquity. He has missed the mark big time of what it means to know and follow God. That's what sin is. And David clearly deserves the just punishment. Of God. He says, you're blameless when you judge me. I deserve it. So what does David need from God? He doesn't want to be judged. So what does he need? Mercy. He needs merciful cleansing and forgiveness from God, which he receives. God promises that to those who are repentant. David receives it by faith and repentance. Nathan the prophet even told David that in the history books. He says, God has taken away your sin." But notice that repentance starts with changed thinking, an accurate understanding of sin. The confession begins in David's heart, and it extends outwards, verbally confessing his sin before others, especially those he sinned against. I mean, that's what this psalm is. It is a public confession of his sin before Israel and a memorial of God's forgiving grace. We must follow this same pattern of inwardly confessing before God what our sin is and then outwardly confessing to those we've sinned against and to those who help keep us accountable. James 5.16 says, James 5.16, Therefore confess your sins to one another, and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. This is one of the extra credit verses. So we should be confessing our sin. As As a mark of our changed understanding, we should be outwardly confessing. But note, not all sin can or should be confessed to everyone. For example, if a young man lusts after a woman in his heart, he shouldn't later then go and confess to that woman that he had lusted after her as part of his repentance. That's not necessary, and that's not edifying. It's just going to totally creep her out. But if you sin in such a way that others witness your sin or they've been substantively harmed by it, part of your repentance must include confession to them. You need to go and say, I have sinned against God and against you in this way. And I know what my sin is. I'm not going to make excuses for it. It is worthy of blame. I have, there's no excuse for what I've done. This kind of confession, it glorifies God, it edifies others, and it helps keep you accountable. And so it's something that we should be doing together. Now, confession is not all that repentance is. Some people do just stop at confession and think they've repented, but that's not true. But repentance does include confession. What else is a true and necessary aspect of repentance? Number two, a change in emotions. A change in emotions leading to sorrow and zeal. And there's a a bit of a sequence to this as well. If you really understand what your sin and idolatry is before God and others you will be emotionally affected. If you really understand what your sin is, it will affect your emotions. You will feel a godly sorrow and a renewed zeal to love and obey God. We see a good description of this in 2 Corinthians 7. Please take your Bibles and go to 2 Corinthians 7, verses 8 to 11. This is what Paul wrote to the Corinthians after he heard that they had repented of sins they had done against him. 2 Corinthians 7, verses 8 to 11. Listen to what he says about their repentance. For though I caused you sorrow by my letter, this letter confronting them, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that the letter caused you sorrow, though only for a while. I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. For behold, what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow, has produced in you. What vindication of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of wrong, in everything you demonstrated yourselves to be innocent in the matter. Again, there's a lot we can say about this verse, but we'll just focus on a few things. Notice that Paul distinguishes fundamentally here between two types of sorrow over sin. A worldly sorrow and a godly sorrow. Both of these are real sorrow. Let's make sure we understand that. And they can both have very tearful emotional displays. But only one is part of true repentance. And that's the godly sorrow. Godly sorrow is God-centered. The grief is primarily about what the sin means and has done to God and to others before God. Godly sorrow may also grieve at the personal consequences of sin, but they are not their primary concern. I can't believe I have sinned against such a good God. I can't believe I've, I've acted so evil to the people that God has given around me. That's godly sorrow's chief concern. Godly sorrow then leads to a change in the heart and life without regret. He says, this is so terrible before God. I'm willing to do whatever it takes to make it up. Whatever treasures have to be given up, so be it. Whatever consequences must be suffered, so be it. I'm turning from this sin, and I'm turning back to God. I say make it up, not in the sense that you work your way back to God, but to make things right. A person is glad to give up his sin if he can have God again, if he can please God again. There's a palpable zeal that comes from godly sorrow. And willing to do whatever it takes to restore those who have been hurt and offended That's what the Corinthians were doing for Paul. He says, look, I see it. That's so encouraging to me. Thus the sorrow of true repentance ultimately leads to salvation. This is the mark of someone who's saved. But worldly sorrow is not God-centered but man-centered, and the heart is never really changed from whatever idolatry it was serving in sin. Thus, godly sorrow is full of regret. Regret about not being able to enjoy that sin or that idol anymore. Regret about getting caught in the sin. Regret about the consequences of getting caught. And regret even about the repentance itself. Ah, I shouldn't have turned from the sin. I really enjoyed it. It's better than what I have now. This is a worldly sorrow. It still worships a false idol rather than God. And therefore, this kind of sorrow does not lead to godliness, but only further sin and ultimately death. This is the kind of sorrow of someone who does not know God and will not be with him forever. Worldly sorrow can help reform a person for a time, but the dog, as Proverbs says, will eventually return to its vomit. you got to change the heart. He needs a... can't be a dog anymore, or else he's just going to go back to the vomit. It's true for us, too. If we are truly repentant and have a real understanding of what our sin is, then we should be filled with a godly sorrow and an eager zeal to see God honored again. The outward visibility of this sorrow will vary, but it should be there. It should be evident to some degree. Therefore, when a repentant person is confessing his sin to the ones that he has affected, he should also be communicating a genuine sorrow before God and a zeal for God. Repentance without a change of emotions is not real repentance. The heart's not really engaged. Though, on the flip side, a mere outward display of emotion does not itself constitute repentance. It's part of repentance, but it's not all of repentance. And sadly, I think many of us know, and certainly we see in biblical and Christian history, there have been plenty of people who have been very sorry about their sin who never repented. They had sorrow, but they didn't have repentance. That's because there's another necessary aspect of repentance that it must accompany changes in both the understanding and the emotions, and that is, number three, a change in will. A change in will leading to commitment. soul with a change, understanding, and renewed godly emotions will not be content to remain in sin, but rather the soul will choose change. It will commit to walking a new way. And this is exactly what Isaiah 55, 7 describes. This is another one of the Extra credit verses. Isaiah 55, 7 says, This is God's invitation to to Israel. Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him return to Yahweh, and he will have compassion on him, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Notice in this verse the clear operation of will. The wicked one forsakes, that is, he gives up, he abandons, he turns away from two items his previous way, that is his lifestyle of behavior, and his previous thoughts. What he believed, what he desired, what he thought. He no more follows those paths. He no more follows the idolatrous path, but instead embraces the path of God. He returns to the Lord, doesn't merely wish to, he actually does. There's an inner commitment, a new inner commitment that manifests and an outward commitment, even in his verbal expression of repentance. So someone who is confessing sin to others does not merely admit what his sin really was before God or why he's grieved about that sin to the point of repentance, but he also expresses a commitment to walk anew from the heart. I'm not going to live this way anymore. I'm going to treat you and others differently for the Lord's sake because my heart has changed. That's the kind of statements we should be making when we repent to others, (laughs) but we dare not make those statements lightly. You better mean what you say. Because there are plenty of people who commit, and we know this, we've seen this, and maybe we've done this, they commit, either internally or verbally, to live differently, but they don't follow through. Why does that happen? Because the heart's not truly changed. They want to reform, but they're not convinced, really, from the heart that they must and that they should. They still go back to their sinful habits, and their words ring hollow. They bring shame to themselves and dishonor to the name of Christ. Changes in understanding, emotions, and will must all be done together. It must be a whole change of the inner man. That's what true repentance is. That's what lasting repentance is. No one part can substitute for the whole. To be clear of guilt, your whole Being, your whole inner man must give up sin, give up idols, and return to God. And when this full change of heart happens, there's always a fourth and final aspect to repentance. This is technically not repentance, but it is the fruit of repentance. It's always the result. It is a change in behavior. Number four, a change in behavior leading to fruit, leading to good fruit. Repentance that does not lead to lasting change in thoughts, words, and actions. Hear this, people is not real. If there's no turning in your life, it's not real repentance. Don't tell me every time after you sin you've repented if you don't change. That's not repentance. Not biblical repentance. The person proclaiming such repentance is still on the path leading to God's judgment. And the Bible doesn't mince words about this. Listen to the way John the Baptist describes it to would-be repenters in Luke 3. Luke 3, verses 7 and 9 he tells some of the Pharisees and legalistic-minded Jews, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham for our father, for I say to you that from these stones God is able to raise up children to Abraham. Indeed, the axe is already laid at the root of the trees, so every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Dare not play games with God or with others when it comes to repentance. The fruit of our lives, it will reveal what's really going on in our hearts and whether we've really changed. True repentance always leads to new and good fruit. Not perfection, but a characteristically righteous new way. And this includes, this is the last point here, restitution and reconciliation where necessary in offended relationships. Some people only think of repentance in terms of vertical relationship with God. Yep, just got to make sure I'm right with God, secure his forgiveness, and then I'm good to move on. But actually, that's not true. You're not good to move on. If your repentance is real, God has called you to make things right with others. Whatever debts you have to them. And even more so. We're to be like Zacchaeus when it comes to this. Luke 19.8 says about Zacchaeus, after he had believed in Christ, Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. Now, he didn't have to give back four times as much. He certainly needed to restore what was taken. And the Old Testament law would say a little bit more than that. But he's ready to do more and we should be too. In repentance, you are looking to repay not only the debts you owe others, but even more besides. You want to honor God and show Him and others that you are serious about your repentance. And this makes sense, right? If you have a new zeal for God, you don't do the bare minimum. You say, I want, I want to go all out. I want to show this person I really am sorry. I want to show God that. I want to encourage that. Now understand that some temporal consequences of sin cannot be immediately cleared by repentance. There is free and full forgiveness with God, it's true, for the repentant, but some physical, legal, relational, and spiritual consequences will remain for some time on earth. Sometimes your sin trains you in unrighteousness. Sometimes you still have to pay a penalty to a secular authority. Sometimes you have broken, and it will take a long time to rebuild the trust of those you've sinned against. You have to be ready for this. And you have to be willing to endure the temporal consequences as part of your repentance. Some people aren't. They expect everything to go back just as harmonious as it was before the sin. And when that doesn't happen, they give up on their repentance. That's not what we are to do. Now we understand, yes, people have a certain responsibility for how they respond to repentance, but... Whatever they do, I want to follow God. I want to make things right. We do whatever we can to make our relationships right again as part of repentance. Jesus says in Matthew 5, if you're ready to worship at the altar with an offering, but you remember your brother has something against you, what are you supposed to do? Leave your offering and go make things right. Then come back and worship. Romans 12.18 says, If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. You haven't really repented if you haven't sought to reconcile with those you've harmed and to make things right with them. Now, you can't force them to reconcile with you. You can't force them to forgive you, but you can show them that you're earnest about your repentance with tangible fruit. And you know what? When we do this, because we're going to sin against one another. But when we actually repent and we go and seek to reconcile with those who've sinned against, you know what the result is usually? A strengthened relationship. An even more joyful and trust-filled relationship. Temporarily, there's a wound. But as that wound heals, it grows back even stronger. And I think many of us can attest to this, right? Especially in your marriages. When you've really repented and when there's the, the true practice of forgiveness, it leads to a greater blessing in relationship and a sure witness of God and his goodness. The world doesn't understand this kind of repentance, this humility, but it should characterize us. To be abundantly clear, if you think you've repented before God, but you still haven't sought to make things right with others, you have not yet repented. Your heart is still holding something back. You need to make things right with God, with both God and other people if you want God to be pleased with your worship again. Now, ideally, an expression of true repentance to others results in forgiveness, the extension of forgiveness. But what is forgiveness? And how should we as Christians practice it? That's what we'll talk about next time. Well, the time went quickly. We'll have to close now. But if you have questions, come talk with me afterwards. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Help us to be a people who deal properly with feelings of guilt and who truly repent from the heart. And Lord, may it lead to our confessing, expressing sorrow, expressing new commitment, and bearing tangible fruit as we seek to make our relationships right with others. In Jesus' name, amen.